Hi, I'm Jayant Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. On the podcast today, we discuss the legacy of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who just a couple of days ago on August 28th announced that he would be resigning from office because of health problems. The news came as something of a shock. For close to eight years now, Mr. Abe brought stability and continuity to a country that had grown used to political churn. In the five years in between Mr. Abe's first stint as Prime Minister, a short-lived one-year term in office that ended in 2007, and his coming to power in 2012, Japan had seen five different Prime Ministers. It's that sense of stability now that may represent Mr. Abe's greatest contribution to Japan's politics both domestic and in the field of its international relations. My guest today is Anand Krishnan, the Hindu's former Beijing correspondent. Anand, welcome again to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jan. Right, so uh, the news of uh, Mr. Abe stepping down uh, from, his, from his role as Prime Minister just broke today. And of course, it comes as, uh, as a bit of a shock. There are many things going on with Japan. Um, well, the, the Olympics that was supposed to happen this year has now been postponed, but he was supposed to sort of play a leading role in that. And of course, uh, the need for Japan to have stable leadership is something that's very acute now, given the geopolitical tensions in the region uh, with China. And um, we'll start there, I think, because Mr. Abe is unique in the fact that, you know, the stability of his reign is, is unique because um, before him, Japan, you know, was famous for having... Uh, changes in changes at the top, having a pre- new prime minister every year. So let's just start with that. Uh, was the news expected? Uh, and then we can sort of get into his uh, domestic legacy and talk about some of his foreign policy achievements as well. Absolutely, Jayant. I don't think it was expected, the timing, only because I think that everyone uh, had assumed that given that uh, Prime Minister Abe had been so invested in the Olympics, especially. Uh, which, of course, had to be postponed this year because of coronavirus. Uh, People assumed that he would be around uh, when the Olympics were to happen in in 2021. And I think that there were rumors and reports in the last few days and weeks about his health condition, which coincided with the pandemic, though, of course, I think it was tied to previous health problems that he had. But just... I think a couple of days ago, you had fairly senior officials in the Japanese government say that, no, listen, uh, there's no doubt that he is going to be around. So for sure, I think the news that broke today is going to be much of a shock, particularly because, uh, as you just said in your question, I think people in Japan and Asia had gotten so used to Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe only because he's been around for so long, uh, especially by Japanese standards. He's been a president. Uh, since end of 2012. And of course, that was his second stint. But in the six years preceding Abe taking over in in 2012, they had something like five or six prime ministers, one per year. So he's been a real fixture of Japanese politics over the last few years, a fixture of Asian diplomacy, a fixture of India-Japan relations, especially with with the chemistry that he had with Prime Minister Modi. I think on many levels, it's going to be uh, really, it's going to take some getting used to to see Japan without Shinzo Abe. And so 
is there is there any indication as of now as to what lies ahead for uh, japan's politics is there an obvious successor well from what i've been reading uh, from the japanese press and today i uh, interviewed a couple of people uh, for the hindu uh, commentators who are based in tokyo uh, and they said that uh, they generally don't think that there's going to be too much of a of political instability and that one or two of the candidates uh, that are from his party are likely to take over in the interim and i think an inter- interesting comment uh, that one uh, professor uh, professor carter at the asia global institute uh, put to me was that beyond the foreign policy legacy of shinzo abe which we will discuss in a moment the thing that really struck him was the impact on how people in japan look at the whole idea of political stability he thinks that one reason why abe was able to stay in power for so long was that he was able to exploit this sense of fatigue among people in japan at the constant churn in the domestic politics and they wanted something stable even though that he went through a lot of controversies in the last few years a lot of corruption scandals involving people close to him uh there were so there were a lot of scandals and controversies but at the same time he was able to last so long in professor carter's view uh because of the fact that people wanted political stability and he thinks that whoever the successor is and however elections go in the future even if abe's party is out of power he thinks that this is perhaps a trend that's going to stay in japanese politics rather than the chopping and churning that we saw for quite a long time right so that's really interesting um right so before we get to i think yeah we'll spend the bulk of this uh, discussion on foreign policy but uh, what 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 kind of domestic uh, policy legacy does uh, mr abe leave so from the people that i've spoken to two of the pillars of, of abe's government were on the external front i guess you could describe him as a nationalist someone who wanted a more prominent role for japan in asia someone who wanted to remove many of the restrictions that had tied down Japan's military since the World War 2 and the pacifist constitution something that he was trying to amend but failed to do uh, but at the same time he did do a lot in terms of expanding Japan's global footprint and raising Japan's profile in Asia and elsewhere on the domestic front i think his record isn't as successful as what he managed to achieve externally and that is simply because i think the seems to be the predominant view of japanese economists is that what came to be called as abenomics his plan to revive japan's economy was mixed at best and politically uh, as i said the fact is that his government kept getting into controversies and scandals that they could well have avoided uh, which were in some sense reminiscent of his first term which ended just in one year So I think if you look back you could probably to put it very simply checkered record on the home front but I would say he did better when it came to foreign policy right uh, let's start the foreign policy bit with uh, firstly Mr Abe was as you've uh, as you've written in your piece today in the Hindu as well um one of the first leaders to talk about the Indo-Pacific region um, as a as a term um and that uh, has implications for uh, India as well and India's role in Asia So um just want to expand on that and you know talk about Shinzo Abe's role here. 
Right. So I think now, of course, Jan, it's become so common and in vogue that people, especially in India and in the US, almost now choose Indo-Pacific over Asia-Pacific. And I think a lot of that goes back to Shinzo Abe. Um, I think it was in 2007 during a visit to India in his first term uh, when he gave uh, a speech in parliament called the Confluence of the Seas. And the point that he made was that the Pacific and Indian Oceans were in a sense of, in a process of coupling. And he famously coined the, the phrase seas of freedom and prosperity. And a lot of it, of course, he didn't mention China, but I think the C word underpinned this idea of a region of, you know, democratic countries working in concert, including India and America and Japan, South Korea and Australia. China was the unsaid binding factor. That also is a reason why for so many years, China has disliked the Indo-Pacific term, which implicitly also recognizes India as a player in the region. And I think that Another analyst I spoke to today from Tokyo told me that both the Indo-Pacific idea and the Quad were very clearly legacies of Shinzo Abe. Uh, He was someone who championed the Quad as well, which, as we know, went in fits and starts and only now has been taking off because in part of the U.S.-China rivalry between uh, Trump and President Xi. But actually, Abe has been championing this idea for much, much longer. I think those are some things that would come to mind when you look at uh, Abe's foreign policy vis-a-vis India. And I think that we've covered many of Abe's visits to India and the the chemistry that he's had with Prime Minister Modi. I think that the India-Japan relationship is probably as healthy as it's been. A lot of it is because of Abe's investment in this relationship. But I think on the economic side, of course, I think a lot of, at least some of the plans that he was championing, such as the bullet train corridor in India, never really took off um, in the way that Japan would have liked. Uh, And I think uh, beyond that, perhaps to sum up in a nutshell, his legacy would be that Japan was not shy about taking on a big profile in the region in perhaps a much more prominent way than it was in the past. Uh, the way the Abe government has gone about trying to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative, for example, in terms of regular trips and engagement with Southeast Asia, even with Africa, I think would be some of the Abe's legacies. And the the sense of the consensus that I heard from people I spoke to uh, while writing the story was that they think there will be a sense of continuity, no matter who takes over, especially when it comes to how Japan deals with China. Right. So speaking about speaking about China, um, the other thing that Mr. Abe is uh, known for in foreign policy is shepherding the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, uh, something that comes up a lot uh, when we talk about U.S. elections. Um, but it was kind of set up as an economic counter to China. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that Japan is the kind of the third largest economy in the world. Um, I thought we could frame this in terms of how it's handled. Uh, the two economic powers that are above it, so the US and China. Um, so what has Mr. Abe's uh, position been toward China, you know, keeping the trade deal aside? Uh, I think many people expected uh, him to be a little bit more hawkish toward China. I think that his position towards China is far more nuanced than perhaps we imagine in India, where I think only because it suits our own narrative to imagine there is a Japan 
that is entirely antagonistic towards China, as that reinforces the India-Japan relationship in our imagination. But actually, he has been fairly uh, nuanced and he's actually helped uh, a recovery in China-Japan relations. When he took over at the end of 2012, China-Japan ties were really in the doldrums. Earlier that year, uh, before Abe took over, a move to nationalize the disputed Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands, as China calls it, the East China Sea, really put the relationship in a sense of freeze. And I remember uh, I was in Beijing at the time when Shinzo Abe visited for the first time in 2014, uh, ostensibly for the APEC summit. But in the lead up to the summit, a lot of people in Japan were saying he shouldn't go. Uh, but not only did Abe go, that he also sought a, a one-on-one meeting with Xi Jinping, a very frosty meeting uh, that I think has, was made famous by this photograph where you see Abe shaking hands and smiling and, and President Xi looking really stone-faced. Uh, but I think that he took a risk and he normalized, brought China uh, relations with China back on uh, a, a good track. And one reason why he did that um, is seems to be the fact that a lot of his constituency, in terms of Japanese corporates, need the China market and they wanted to have good economic relations with China. So while Abe has been firm in terms of countering things like the Belt and Road Initiative on, on the one hand, he has on the other been very smart in keeping things okay with Beijing. In fact, President Xi Jinping was supposed to visit Japan in 2020 before COVID-19 happened. That's obviously a visit that's not going to happen on Abe's watch now. So I think that he was smart in fixing ties with China, keeping economic relations going while at the same time working with other countries in Asia to try and mitigate some of the aspects of China's rise that were causing some amount of discomfort to them. So I think that how China will look uh, at, the, at the change in, Japan, uh, the change in uh, politics in Japan will be interesting to see. On the one hand, it is possible, uh, Jan, that it could go back to a sense of acrimony if whoever Abe's successors are feel that the balance has been sort of too cautious and they need to be harder on China. So I think that ironically, despite the impressions we have of Shinzo Abe, he was in some sense a factor of stability in the China-Japan relationship over the last few years. And, um, and you know, similarly with the US, um, so the TPP is likely to come up again, um, especially if there's a change in leadership uh, in the US because um, it's likely that an administration under Joe Biden would uh, try and revive TPP, if not in name, then at least try and come up with a trade agreement that is uh, in keeping with the same spirit of TPP. That, so, I mean, does that does Mr. Abe's uh, stepping down now make a difference in that equation? It's interesting, even with the TPP, that Abe had really championed it, even though Trump withdrew from it. But at the same time, he has also kept going the RCEP, which involves China and which India withdrew from. Uh, right. So on the one hand, he is still open to this RCEP arrangement, which involves China, but still pushing the TPP as an alternative. And I'm sure that if there is a change in government in Washington, that Japan will be particularly keen on bringing them back on board. But I think that the way he has handled these different arrangements also underlines the point that I was just making on how he has been very smart in working with China on some issues, but at the same time, taking them on economically and also not giving way when it comes to the the many uh, disputes that they have, uh, both over questions of history uh, and over the islands issue as well. 
So I think he has been fairly smart and how he has managed relations with China without allowing them to really decline in a way that they were before he took over. Right. So um, I guess we'll then just uh, close the discussion with um, once again circling back to how uh, Shinzo Abe is going to be remembered uh, domestically in Japan. What kind of stands out as his, his signature kind of achievements, the things that he really pushed for? So and I would say his legacy, we could think of it in three ways. I think perhaps the most uh, the striking one is just his longevity. The fact that he's been around for so many years in of itself I think is something that is hugely significant in the context of Japanese politics. I think, as we saw externally, he certainly will be remembered as someone who did a lot to raise Japan's profile. But even here, there was some amount of debate in Japan where some aspects of his agenda, such as something we didn't talk about, which was trying to revise Japan's constitution, especially Article 9, uh, in terms of Abe wanting to really normalize the Japanese military. That's something that wasn't very popular in Japan. And I think that most opinion polls to show that people were against that. And that was one of his main agendas that he did not achieve. I think on his domestic politics track record, the last two years, the number of scandals that they've been, uh, probably he scores lower, even in terms of reviving the economy, he didn't really get all he wanted done. So I think it's definitely a mixed record giant at the end of the day. And perhaps just the very fact that he did break the most important record of being in office for so long will really leave no doubt that he will certainly be missed. Right. We'll wrap it up there, Anand. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you very much.